Welcome back to the Men You're Not Alone podcast. This is episode 111. I've entitled it Second Peter 2 and Jude, Do We Know What's In It? Over the past few decades, as I've launched Bible study groups or been asked to take over the teaching of a class about the Bible, I do so by first traveling with those in the study or class through the book of Genesis. I use the book of Genesis as an anchor point and begin branching out to include more of the Bible as my class develops at least some familiarity with the book of Genesis. I don't know how it's possible to understand God or a majority of the Bible without an understanding of the book of Genesis, which may explain why it's the first book in every Christian Bible. Perhaps it's first because it provides a lens of context through which we must view the remainder of the Bible. I equate teaching the Bible without helping my students to first have at least a basic familiarity and understanding of the contents of Genesis to beginning a conversation with a phrase like, and then she hit me in the face with a pie, expecting that whoever you're going to you're saying it to can make sense of that phrase, or beginning a mystery novel in chapter 17, only to find that the story makes no sense. Neither of these scenarios afford context or perspective to the person receiving the information, and it leaves them repeatedly asking the question, why? Ever since I was about the age of 11, I have paid attention to patterns. Patterns in life. Well, I guess it's not that I actively pay attention to them, because I don't. For whatever reason, I simply can't stop seeing them. I can't unsee them. And they read like a roadmap to where things are going to be. Since age 11, I have used the roadmap of these patterns as a compass to know which businesses to launch, which investments to buy or sell, and to discern which cultural issues are most in need of being addressed. One of the patterns I've observed in humankind is that the question which seemingly nags us the most is why. The who, what, when, and where are interesting to us, but until we know the why, we often have difficulty moving forward. I see this as an innate part of us being made in the image of God, or made as the imagers of God. We sometimes know the why, but God always knows the why. We are made in His image and intended to be imagers of Him. But we are, even on our best days, a flawed and damaged reflection of our Creator. The Bible informs us that we are to judge with discernment and act accordingly toward aspects of life that are moral or immoral. But only God is fit to righteously judge the heart of a human. He's the only one who always knows the entirety of the why behind the thoughts and actions of an individual. This is not an episode about judging others, so I'm going to steer it back onto the road. We want more than anything to understand the why. This is the why behind me doing what I can to familiarize a study group or a class with the book of Genesis before launching out across the Bible. Genesis provides invaluable context that gives people at least a shot of understanding many of the whys that they're going to bump into as they travel through the Bible during their lives. I have been focused on walking my latest class through the book of Genesis for the past few months. I I step out of Genesis more frequently now to illustrate why we need the context of Genesis to make sense of so much of the Old and New Testament. And my goal is to make them familiar with Genesis and through that lens, to give them a glimpse of the wonder of the Bible and why, even after 42 years of reading and studying it, the Bible is still a beautiful wonder to me. Last night, I sat down at the table with a notebook to lay out a rough outline of where I think my lessons for this current class need to go over the next six weeks. We're about to begin a look at the flood. 
So I decided I'd add to the lesson for tomorrow a few minutes of detour to Second Peter 2 in the book of Jude. These would at least show a glimpse of the scope, that dramatic impact through time of what led to God bringing about the flood. And in typical fashion, like every other time I sit down to begin studying passages and then frame it into some kind of a lesson, it's as if I'm reading those passages again for the first time. This is part of that beautiful wonder of the Bible to me that I mentioned a minute ago. I may have read a verse or a chapter 200 times in my life, but they each read a little differently every time I return to them. As I poured over these passages last night, the outline of my lesson slowly took shape on my notebook. But at the same time, there was this parallel path of thought that was forming in my mind. And it's just an idea. And perhaps nothing more than an entirely ungrounded possibility with no merit. And it was born out of this nagging question of why. Not about the flood. I understand the why of the flood. But something about the pre-flood world that may have reached all the way from back there into our present day. Specifically, a hunch about the why behind the jabs. I would never pursue what I'm saying here during my class at church, but I'm not teaching here. I'm simply thinking out loud on my podcast. If you could see inside my head right now, it, it looks like a tornado. It's how my mind works. I'm going to try to grab a few pieces from that tornado and see if my hunch is even worth thinking about any further. It may not be. Right now, I don't know. Thinking out loud helps me sort stuff out. That's true of most men. Jesus issued a warning to the future. For whatever reason, I haven't thought of this warning in a little while now. But it popped back into my recall a few seconds ago, and I'd rather quote Jesus' warning than to try to paraphrase it. If you want to find it, you can find it in Matthew 24, and it'll be in verses 37 to 39. Jesus states, For just like the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away. It will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. First, Jesus is obviously stating that his return will be sudden and it will impact the entire world. His reference to the flood may imply that his return will have catastrophic implications upon portions of the entire world. Jesus references his return. Is there any chance he's referring to his first return? And I know that question will sound odd or even like heresy to many Christians. But here's why the question is in my head right now. Not long into his ministry, Jesus pronounced to a crowd, the crowd that was listening to him at that moment, I tell you most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. And you can find that in three places in the Bible. It's in Luke 9, 27. It's in Matthew 16, 28, and Mark 9, 1. I understand the church and the scholarly explanations of the why behind Jesus making this statement. I've defended them many times throughout the years. But I'm trying to look at this simply, almost as if I were looking at it through the mind of a child. I'm not going to derail where I want to go with this episode, so I would invite you to go back and listen to episode 51 to get a glimpse of why I would be asking this question. Okay, back to Matthew 24 and the tornado. Of all the examples Jesus could have grabbed, why did he grab the pre-flood world as a comparison for his return? The antediluvian or pre-flood world became the most twisted and vile corruption of creation the world has ever seen. So why would Jesus grab the days of Noah for context? 
If Jesus wanted to illustrate how fast his return will happen, why didn't he choose the Red Sea closing suddenly on the Egyptian army that was pursuing the Hebrews as they fled Egypt? That would have most certainly held immediate contextual and cultural understanding to those to whom he was speaking, not to mention a direct correlation to the Hebrew culture in which he was speaking. Why didn't he grab, uh, as an example, when Yahweh's spirit left the, the, left the temple? That was sudden. And again, it would have had a direct correlation to the Hebrew culture to whom he was speaking. He could have referenced the sudden negative impact upon the Philistines when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, how they couldn't get rid of it quickly enough once they captured it. But Jesus didn't. And again, it would have spoken directly into the Hebrew culture to which he was speaking. Jesus goes all the way back to the pre-flood world to find a comparison to his return. A pre-flood world so completely wicked, so evil, corrupt in its generations or genes, a world that had become so entirely something other than what Yahweh had created, that the only solution was to destroy it all and start over to save his most prized creation, humankind. God would do this through the genetic line of Noah and Noah's family. Noah was clean in his generations, or arguably Noah's DNA had not been corrupted by something that had transformed the, the entire rest of creation into an abomination that made Yahweh regret that he'd even made humankind. And if you want to find that, you can go look around Genesis 6-6 and Genesis 6-9. Notice that this is found in the book of Genesis, the book that many churches don't teach anymore. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis for some reason. Whatever his reason, he obviously felt it important to reach that far back. Almost as if the book were one of the most important in the Bible. Almost as though the book of Genesis is an anchor point in the answer to the questions of why God does what he does. Jesus reaches way back to Genesis, to Noah, to the pre-flood world. Without doubt, the most corrupted version of creation that has ever existed. A world that has transformed from the perfection of the garden to, I mean, the poster child of bazaar. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't sound familiar to you. I think you should go spend some time exploring the book of Genesis. And if you're waiting for your church to teach it to you, it may be a while. If you want a good place to start, I recommend reading Genesis yourself without any commentaries. Just read it for yourself. Get a notebook. Don't blitz past those passages you don't understand or can't make any sense of. When you see something unusual, stop and consider it. Write it down. It's okay to ask yourself, what in the heck is that? And then once you've read Genesis, I'd recommend, I mean, personally, I'd recommend Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm or Supernatural. It will shave down a whole lot of time for you. The first one, uh, Unseen Realm, that's a more scholarly book. And unless you're a mega nerd and you like scholarly or research papers, you probably won't finish that book. But his book, Supernatural, is just a more simplified version of that same content. And in my opinion, Unseen Realm, hands down, is one of the most organized compilations of existing research on Genesis and the various ancient Mesopotamian rabbit holes that spin around the book of Genesis. I, th I found it entirely readable without falling asleep, but I'm a nerd. There's no shame in reading Supernatural if you want a simpler version of the same content. So in Matthew 24, Jesus reaches way back to the days of Noah, bizarro world, and references that people were eating and drinking and marrying in those days. 
to me, like if I move this forward into a more current context, this is me, like me grabbing the bloodthirsty war campaigns of 20th century authoritarians like Pol Pot, Vladimir Lenin, Karl Marx, Adolf Hitler, but mentioning them only as examples of how people were eating, drinking, and marrying during those years. It doesn't fit. At least not on its face, it doesn't. If I want to reference people eating, drinking, and marrying to, to people I'm speaking to, I, I don't have to go any farther back than the present day. People in Jesus' day were eating, drinking, and marrying. So why did Jesus go all the way back to the bizarro pre-flood world and the days of Noah only to mention that people were eating, drinking, and marrying? If you are not familiar with what was going on in the days of Noah, here's a super short, bulleted, and it's not even close to complete glimpse of what was going on in those days. So a band of spiritual beings, had a, they abandoned the spiritual realm. They crossed into the physical realm with no ability to return to the spiritual realm. They essentially burned the ships. Then they took wives, quote, took wives as many as they wanted of human women and produced offspring, a race of giants known as the Nephilim with these human women. These spiritual beings brought a bunch of knowledge from the spiritual realm into the physical realm of mankind, knowledge that Yahweh had forbid the human realm from knowing. These spiritual beings introduced war, seduction, lust, and a host of other, quote, knowledge into human life. It appears that these spiritual beings were obsessed with genetic manipulation, and they created a myriad of bizarre creatures, corrupting the majority of DNA upon the earth. See the, quote, mythologies of every ancient culture that's ever existed to get an idea of the creatures that were born of these, ge these genetic alterations. So God floods the earth to shut all this down and start over with Noah and his family. The Nephilim, and it appears the same pre-flood twisted genetic corruption pops back up after the flood in the land of Canaan, which included the land of modern-day Israel. Yahweh leads the Hebrew people, conservatively well north of a million of them now, to the, quote, promised land, Canaan. When they get there, they record that the people, I'm using that term loosely, or at least people-like, if you take people-like and put it in quotes, people-like people, who live there are so large that the Hebrews feel like they are the size of grasshoppers compared to them. Yahweh tells the Hebrews that, that he is going to kill off these giants, but not all at one time or the Hebrews would be overrun by the wild beasts of the land. This begs a couple of questions. It begs the question, if the Hebrews felt like they were the size of grasshoppers next to the giants of Canaan, how big were these giants? And Yahweh doesn't seem concerned about whether the Hebrews can survive these giants. But Yahweh does tell them that the giants are temporarily useful to manhandle, I'm assuming kill off, the wild beasts of Canaan. Which begs the question, if it takes these giants who make the Hebrews feel like grasshoppers to manhandle the wild beasts of Canaan, we're not talking cattle here. That's what everybody likes to fill this, not everybody, a lot of people like to fill this in. Unconsciously, they'll put cattle of Canaan. The Hebrews were not afraid. If one or two million Hebrews barging into Canaan, they're not afraid of cows. So these Hebrews, they feel like grasshoppers, but they're, God's going to use the beast to manhandle, I think, probably kill off those wild beasts of Canaan. So what kind of wild beasts are we talking about here? Perhaps beasts that would have been found in the pre-flood world of Noah that resulted from that unbridled genetic manipulation by the spiritual beings that left the spiritual realm? If you want to go look around on some of this, you can find it in Numbers 13.33 and around there, and then also in Exodus 23. The, I just grabbed a couple things out of verses uh, 28 to 30 in Exodus 23. 
So back to why Jesus reached all the way back into that bizarre pre-flood world of Noah's day, and then used that exceedingly twisted world as an example of people eating, drinking, and marrying. Could he have reached that far back because perhaps the eating, drinking, and marrying they were doing in Noah's day were not the same eating, drinking, and marrying that was going on in the culture to whom Jesus was speaking? I'm racking my brain here because something simply doesn't fit. At least not on its face it doesn't. What could have been different about eating, drinking, and marrying in the days of Noah? I don't know for certain, but I do know that many ancient and even not-so-ancient legends and oral traditions of the cultures around the world relate the presence of races of giants in their land, and that many of these giants were cannibalistic and or they had a fondness for the meat of humans. To my knowledge, the Hebrews that Jesus is speaking to, they were not engaging in cannibalism. So did Jesus reach back to Noah's day to give his audience a precise context about the type of, quote, eating he was referring to? Again, I don't know. As far as drinking goes, I have a possible, but it's a stretch. In an ancient world full of all kinds of human and animal sacrifices, I would think there is ample room for Jesus to be making specific reference to a form of drinking that was not taking place in the culture to whom he was speaking. I'm not going to get vulgar on this uh, on this podcast, or, or graphic, not vulgar, graphic. So what about marrying? Anything unusual about marrying in the pre-flood world? Yes, in spades. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, along with a slew of other ancient accounts from around the world, they informed the reader that spiritual beings abandoned the spiritual realm, married human women, and had a lot of offspring that were a creepy race of giants. It's safe to say if Jesus were seeking to reference a unique kind of, quote, marrying, it's pretty difficult to imagine a time when it was any more bizarre than in the pre-flood world of Noah's day. I'm not stating that Jesus reached all the way back to the pre-flood days of Noah because he was indicating that the world would again become like the days of Noah before his return. But at least to me, it seems close enough to the edge of highly unusual to warrant my entertaining it at least as a possibility. What if Jesus reached all the way back to the pre-flood world of Noah because he wanted people in a future, i.e. our present day or a time yet future to us, that would look very different from the time in which he was speaking, this very question about his warning, just like I'm doing now. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. I have been listening to presentations and reading articles from a slowly growing number of people who are trying to sell the world on the benefits of humans eating human meat that has been grown from human stem cells, mostly from aborted human babies, in large vats of uh, saline solution. That's where they grow it. I wish I were making this up. I have watched the increased attention that Maria Abramovich has been getting for her sickly, grotesque, quote, art, which seems obsessed with human blood and cannibalism. Hollywood swoons over this debauchery. I have watched various Hollywood actors and actresses bragging about how they drink blood. Again, you can't make this stuff up. I could list other gut-wrenching things here, but I'm not going to because I shoot to make all these episodes appropriate for ages 16 and older, and I don't want to venture into a gray area on this and make it... I don't want to use graphic examples. So I'm watching men marry men. Women marry women. Women marry animals. Polyamorous groups of people all being married to each other and people openly campaigning to make it legal for adults to marry children. The pre-flood world of Noah's day was a severely twisted corruption of nearly everything Yahweh had created. 
I would argue that a portion of our world is trying very hard, very hard to get us back to that condition. If we can give any credence to the ancient records, which I believe we are reasonably safe to do, the pre-flood world of Noah's day was full of genetic abominations. The spiritual beings that abandoned their abode and crossed into the physical realm to birth hybrid giant offspring with human women, they, they seem to have been obsessed with corrupting every piece of DNA in the world. And they appear to have been almost successful, minus Noah and enough of the animals to restart creation after the flood. Curiously, we now find ourselves living in a world that has a number of incredibly wealthy and influential individuals, families, and organizations obsessed with eugenics and genetic manipulation. So much so that they convinced half the world's population to let them inject untested genetic-altering substances into their bodies. Not once, not twice, but many times. The University of California is at the cusp of incorporating the same untested genetic altering material into spinach, carrots, and lettuce. We know this because they brag about how close they are to successfully being able to hide genetic altering substances into our food chain. We are watching, quote, scientists genetically combine animals that are unable to mate and produce offspring in the natural world. Creatures that were never intended to be combined. Yahweh was, is, and will always be the only one truly able to create life. My mind wanders back to the Garden of Genesis 3 when the Nakash, the devil, tells Eve that he's going to make her like the, the Elohim, the little G-gods. She liked the idea of being like the little G-gods. From the Nakash in the Garden to the B'nai Elohim, who left the spiritual realm to produce hybrid offspring with human women, to the current day, this growing obsession with altering DNA, I'm seeing a constant theme. And that theme is since they can't create, they will corrupt the very DNA of creation itself into abominations. The only thing they can create is abominable hybrids that were never supposed to exist in the first place. I'm not the only one who knows evil when he sees it. And I'm seeing a lot of evil these days. Not just regular evil but evil more at the all-in level. It reminds me of the evil that engulfed almost the entirety of creation in the pre-flood days of Noah. All of this leaves me wondering something. When the B'nai Elohim left the spiritual realm and produced abominable hybrid giant offspring through human women, they seem to have planted a persistent presence of evil designs upon the earth. An evil design that Peter warned about in 2 Peter 2, and Jude warned about it in his short letter. It all ties back to when some of the B'nai Elohim left the spiritual realm to enter our physical realm and produced a bizarre offspring. The Hebrews referred to it as the Nephilim, the tyrannical giants. That same bloodline surfaces after the flood. Fast forward many centuries and we find both Peter and Jude warning that certain people or beings who were marked out for condemnation long ago have slipped into or infiltrated the churches and will continue to do so for the purpose of convincing followers of Jesus to abandon Jesus. That's basically the same message that Nakash delivered to Eve in the garden. Abandon Jesus. Abandon God. And that seems to be a persistent message delivered to humankind by a small number of rebels that once called the spiritual realm home. Oddly, Jesus reaches all the way back to the pre-flood days of Noah when issuing a warning. Peter does the same thing. Jude does the same thing. Coincidence? Maybe. There's this nagging question that remains parked in my mind. 
And that question is this. Is there any chance that the worldwide gene-altering experiment of 2020 to 2022, likely the most radical and largest post-flood experiment that has ever been conducted against humankind, could it have any ties to trying to recreate or hunt for a gene marker remnant from the Nephilim? Or could someone be trying to reintroduce the Nephilim upon the earth yet again? That sound crazy to you? To me, it sounds like the ancient histories. It sounds almost exactly like the ancient histories. Am I any closer to answering the why to this than when I started? It's too early for me to tell. But there is one question that I have not been able to shake for three years now. Do we really know in full detail what was in those jabs? We know what we've been told. The people who worked on the jabs know something that was in them. But my hunch says these operations were compartmentalized enough that no more than a handful of people in the world really know in full detail what was in those jabs and why it was in there. I'm going to leave this one here. I hope you have a fantastic rest of the day and I'll catch you on the next one.